Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Rob Rennie. I'm standing in for Steve, who's sadly had an operation recently and is in recovery mode at the moment. Welcome to you all. I'm very pleased to have so many of you here tonight to support the Trust. Great to see you all. Firstly, please welcome a member of the Guild of Motor Writers, author, publisher, broadcaster, commentator, Guy Loveridge. Thank you, and good evening. Um, my hearty thanks to you for coming out tonight on what's a very warm evening, 75th anniversary of D-Day, as we heard. Um, I'm not going to take up too much of your time because I'm just the publisher. I didn't do much. I just turned Graham and Duncan's researches into a book, um, but wanted to tell you about that process a little bit. I've been to a few of these fantastically entertaining and insightful evenings here at Brooklands, having first come to Brooklands in 1982 when I was, well, a bit shorter and a bit slimmer than I am, really. Um, I got involved with Connaught because in the early 2000s I joined a company called Connaught and we were building a two-litre V10 hybrid supercar. Um, we didn't build that many and we went out of business. Um, but the technology that we developed is in use to this day. If you go to ProDrive in Banbury, they're hybridizing transits using our technology. Uh, so we got something right. We were just, in my book, ahead of the curve. If we'd come up with that technology slightly later, I think we'd still be in business today. Because our ethos was, what's the point in having all hybrid cars instantly, or all electric cars when you've got billions that need a retrofit kit? So we developed a retrofit kit that has a 73% saving over the Myra and NCAP urban cycle, and you could bolt it on for £465 plus VAT, which is what ProDrive are doing. And if you have a slightly hybridized van and you are running a multi-drop network and your name is Sainsbury's, think how much you're saving every time that car goes in and out of a congestion charging zone. And that was our ethos, but it didn't work. One of the side spin-offs of that was that in 2008, I found myself sat on a grid at Monaco in a 1949 L2 Connaught sports car, AHC 82, taking part in the Monaco Historics. I qualified 31st out of 32, gave myself a stern talking to and finished 19th, which I was quite happy with. My strongest memory is of going down towards Saint-Devaux and watching, because they told us at Scoopneering, this is a Grand Prix, this is a full FIA event, so I think my fireproof pants did four races that weekend. My gloves certainly did four races because uh, we all came down wearing what we'd wear for VSCC meetings and the scrutineers threw us all out. So it was every man for himself, go down to Grand Prix race wear, buy up every available piece of kit. And Jarrah Venables in the Formula Junior race used my fireproofs and then gave them to me and I passed them on to somebody else in a later Formula One race later in the afternoon because there just wasn't enough kit. But... The flip side of that was they treated the cars like modern Formula One cars. I remember coming down, just about to break for Sandevote, and watching in absolute amazement as a British Racing Green J2X Allard was craned out over my head, pouring all of its fluids onto the track as it went over me, and it rained oil and petrol and water on me. But they just wanted to get things cleared. Connaught's an interest. Connaught's a passion. I am the owner now of... The first Connaught, you'll see it later on, Kenneth McAlpine's car, MPH, um, which I'm immensely proud of. 
If any of you use YouTube, does anyone know how to use YouTube? Good, can you come around and explain it to me? Because otherwise I have to get my nine-year-old to tell me what to do. On YouTube, the footage of last year, 2018's Ford Water Trophy, is 2 minutes 47 seconds long. And 138 of those seconds are me belching smoke because the capillary to the oil pressure gauge burst and was spraying all over the exhaust. And the TV company thought it was hilarious that I was laying smoke like a destroyer. And I came last. Make no bones about that. Um, I heard that Graham and Duncan were turning years almost lifetimes of research on Connaught into a book. And I spoke to Duncan at Race Retro and said, I hear, you know, you're finally doing the Connaught book. He said, well, my brother is, but um, I think we've got a publisher. I said, yeah, it's me. He went, no, it's not. Went, oh, right. Um, okay, uh, well, if you fall out with that publisher, let me know. And I then found out through the grapevine that that publisher was MRP, which vexed me not a little bit because I was in the process of working under a non-disclosure agreement to buy MRP. Um, but a fairly well-known New Zealand ex-Grand Prix mechanic and Grand Prix driver got there ahead of me. And he bought it. And I thought, oh, well, that's that. I won't be able to publish the Connaught book. Until Howden Gallant... Oh, did I say Howden? Sorry. Until Howden said to Graham, oh, yeah, I'm going to use my designer, and he lives in North Island. And Graham said, well, I, I rather thought that we'd be involved in the whole design process of this book. Ah, oh, no, he lives in North Island in New Zealand. That's who I'm going to use. And luckily nothing had been signed, and I got a message to meet Graham, went up with my designer. We met at a hotel just off the M62 at the top of Huddersfield. And Graham said, well, if, if we go ahead, where does the designer live? And I looked at my publishing partner, Richard Netherwood, and Richard said, about two and a half miles that way. And Graham said, excellent. And we shook hands on the deal then. Um, because Duncan is a, a successful lawyer, there was a piece of paper, but it was a very, very simple contract that said, Guy's going to produce a book. Graham's going to write a book, Graham, Richard, and a bit of Guy are going to design a book, and we're going to call it Connaught Centre Syracuse, and we're going to publish it and sell it. And that's pretty much what we've done. It's my 15th book. Um, I started writing and publishing in 1996, so in 22 years, because it came out last year. That's not bad, 15 books, I don't think. Um, it's the one which I can say hand on heart, of which I'm the most proud. Um, because it's told a story that is vital. Um, my good friend and colleague Simon Taylor will be here in no short time telling you about his HWM book, which was another story. And I'm in touch with a gentleman in America who happens to be chief of design for um, one of the branches of Ford, for Lincoln, and he's writing a book on Alta. All of these little manufacturers were important. They kept the flag flying, but Connaught were the first. Connaught were the first all-British car and driver to win a Grand Prix at Syracuse in 1955. That they started with three Second World War veterans, who, uh, two of whom were involved 75 years ago today, one of whom had been invalided out of the Air Force, and that's another really tenuous link. I went to a public school in Berkhamsted, and I fight for the fame of any old Berkhamstedian, and Rodney Clark went to Berkhamsted. So him, Graham Green. Sir Anthony Hopkins, me, if you'll allow it, and Rodney Clark, about the most famous Berkhamsteadians I can think of. So Graham will now tell you the history of Connaught, but even today, to go from zero, three-car enthusiasts with a couple of pre-war racing cars, Bugatti, Maserati, 
1948 and deciding, yeah, we're going to build a sports car with the idea of going motor racing, to within seven years of won a Grand Prix, can you imagine how much that would cost someone today to achieve that level of success from a standing start? And of course, he'll also tell you how within two years of winning that Grand Prix, they've gone out of business because they received not a penny of the funding that BRM did. They didn't have an uber-rich benefactor like Mr. Van der Velde behind them, like Van Wall did. So, uh, interesting. Hear about the things that Connaught did before anybody else did. Putting the engine behind the driver, for one. Having their own wind tunnel, for another. And many other things. Enjoy Graham's talk. And um, if you wish to buy a copy of the book, it's not compulsory, obviously, but I did carry over 80 kilograms of worth of books up those stairs, so I'll be really upset if you don't. Um, I'll be sat at the back of the room, and Graham will join me as soon as he's uh, cleared his throat and had a drink at the end of his talk. So thank you for putting up with me and listening. And um, the man who knows pretty much all there is to know about Connaught will entertain you for the next short while. Graham Rabagliati. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much for coming. And um, it's, it really is an honour to be here today to uh, tell you a bit about Connaught. But in fact, I can probably leave now because the guy's told you most of the story. <laughs> so, but... Uh, as I say, thank you very much for, for being here. As, as Guy mentioned, I, uh, I spent a lot of time researching this uh, book and I was asked before how long did it take and I think it was about 14 years. <clears throat> but that was in addition to the work that uh, my brother Duncan had done. He's a, as, as well as being a lawyer, he's a bit of a motoring historian and has a, a large archive and a particularly a large archive on Connaught information. And uh, it was just partly using that archive which enabled me to put together the history of Connaught. And the send to Syracuse bit, well, probably you all know that, particularly as you're local to this area. Uh, send, of course, is just down the road near Guildford, and Syracuse is where their great victory uh, was in 1955 with Tony Brooks. Connaught um, built 34 cars. They started, the first one was completed in 1948, and uh, the final car was completed uh, around 1957, when Connaught Engineering uh, ceased to operate. Uh, these cars consisted of 14 sports cars, uh, 10 Formula 2 cars, uh, two sports racing cars and uh, eight Formula One cars. My first uh, memories of Connaught, as was as a, a young lad, when I went to the, well, I was taken by my father with my brother Duncan to the Easter Monday meeting at Goodwood, and I still have a program, uh, in 1958. Connaught uh, Engineering was, were, were no longer racing at that time. Uh, they had closed down in 57. But on the front cover, as you will see, was a picture of a Connaught. And that was Stuart Lewis Evans uh, in the dart-shaped or toothpaste tube Connaught, uh, which had won the race the previous year in 1957. 
That was Connaught's last victory. That wasn't the first race I ever went to because I was very lucky in that the first motor race I ever went to was probably uh, thought of by many people as the greatest Grand Prix ever, it was the 1957 German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, when uh, Fangio um, caught up from being 40-odd seconds behind the two Ferraris, uh, overtook Hawthorne and Collins, and won the 1957 German Grand Prix. As I say, that was the first motor race I ever went to, and I can still remember it well. Connaught actually did race at the Nürburgring one, one year. They weren't there in 57 uh, because they were no longer operating. But they had been there in 1953 when they had four cars there uh, for uh, Roy Salvadori, Kenneth McAlpine, Prince Beer, and uh, Johnny Cleese, the, the Belgian. But probably the thing that uh, most people remember Connaughts for was their great victory in 1955 at the Syracuse Grand Prix. And I'll talk a bit more about that later. But just to say that uh, that was um, the first Grand Prix win by a British car driven by a British driver actually for 31 years. The guy wasn't strictly correct when he said it was the first one ever because um, Sir Henry Seagrave won the uh, San Sebastian Grand Prix back in 1924 in a Sunbeam. And this is a picture of him winning the French Grand Prix at Tours the previous year in 1923. But, but after Sir Henry Seagray's victories, it was 31 years before another great base, uh, victory was achieved by a British car and driven by a British driver. Things are different now. Seven out of the ten present Grand Prix teams are based in the, in the UK, in fact, based in England. This is a picture of uh, Jensen Button in the Braun, which the uh, Braun team, of course, is now Mercedes. And Mercedes, even Mercedes, is based in Britain. Uh, the, the, both the car and engine um, factories are based in, in Britain. And so as I said, seven out of 10 of the Grand Prix teams are based in Britain. Even Renault is still based in Britain. But it wasn't always like that. Um, after Sir Henry Green Seagrave's victory, uh, in the following years up to the war, the leading teams were Bugatti, Alfa Romeo, Maserati, and the two uh, German government-sponsored, financed teams of Mercedes and Auto Union. And it was uh, right up to the Second World War. Um, Britain didn't have a, a successful Grand Prix car. And part of it was lack of finance. Finance always comes into racing, comes into it now, but it certainly came into it then as well. After the uh, Second World War, Britain did try. And um, Raymond Mays tried very hard. He got a lot of finance together uh, and produced the V16 BRM. Um, 
as I say, a lot of British industry um, helped with parts and, uh, and money, and a lot of money, and the car was designed and built. Um, but unfortunately, BRM, uh, the V16 BRM was too complicated, too expensive, and too late. Because by the time it was anywhere near capable of winning races, they changed the Grand Prix cars from Formula One to uh, four and a half liter or one and a half liter supercharged cars to two liter cars, which was the, 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 the then current Formula Two. So even after the war, uh, the leading manufacturers were, were uh, from the continent. Alfa Romeo, uh, Maserati, Mercedes in the mid-50s, and uh, of course uh, Ferrari, who were coming on as well. So, Connaught, it's a story of the struggle of a small team of British enthusiasts trying to achieve the great success which they, in the end, did. But they, like a lot of other small manufacturers, and we talked, to, we mentioned earlier about HWM and, uh, and other small British manufacturers, they all suffered the same problem of lack of finance. And in fact, probably the problems with BRM had the knock-on effect that having vested in, in BRM, British industry was reluctant to do it again. So HWM, Connell, Keeft and others found it difficult to raise finance. So, who were the people of Connaught? Well, I've mentioned Tony Brooks, um, the great Tony Brooks, the driver of the car that won uh, for Connaught at Syracuse in 1955. But there were three other people. Uh, Rodney Clark, who was the sort of driving force and designer. Mike Oliver, he was very much the engine, engine man. And Kenneth McAlpine, who was really the finance man. They were all actually RAF pilots during the war. Now, um, Rodney Clark was a great Bugatti enthusiast, and he had a Bugatti before the war. And here we see him in his uh, T-59 Bugatti at Prescott in uh, May 1947. As I said, he was an, an ex-RAF pilot, flying bombers at the start of the war. But unfortunately, he was invalided out of the RAF uh, with severe sinus trouble. Uh, but he was a great Bugatti enthusiast. And um, he is quoted as saying that uh, uh, the Bugatti gave more miles per hour per pound than any of its competitors. Um, Rodney Clark... Um, decided towards the end of the war, uh, before the end of the war, that he wanted to get into the car business. And he set up in 1943, uh, he acquired Central Garage in Chobham uh, with his, uh, a friend of his, uh, Leonard Potter, who was a partner. Um, he was only a partner for a short while, uh, but uh, he, he was involved at that stage. Then in 1946, they moved to Continental Cars, uh, or renamed it, and moved to Send, and renamed it as Continental Cars. The plan was, and had been since the end of the war, was 
to try and get Ettore Bugatti to supply him with new cars uh, so that he could be a, an importer and, uh, and dealer of new Bugattis. And he wrote, uh, Rodney Clark wrote to Ettore Bugatti um, and uh, asked him if this would be possible. And he said, well, you know, I've... Uh, um, not only am I a major Bugatti um, uh, garage in that I help and maintain garage, and he had got a good reputation for it, but he also had a, a man called Louis Giron, who was ex-Bugatti at Molsheim, um, who was the chief engineer at Continental Cars. Unfortunately, Ettore Bugatti, uh, he did write back very politely, but saying that uh, the factory was so devastated from the war that there was uh, no opportunity to be manufacturing, let alone supplying cars in, in the short term. But one thing that did happen around then was that uh, um, Continental Cars were asked to provide cars for uh, the making of a Rex Harrison film, uh, The Rake's Progress. This was a big boost because they were asked to provide all that was required. Cars, drivers, um, and they were going to be paid five pounds for each item. A car, a driver, every time they drove it. Um, and this uh, extended on from being just a few days of uh, hiring, a car, hiring cars out to the film to six weeks. But it truly set up continental cars for the future. Gave them a good solid financial uh, background. The second uh, key person at Connaught, uh, after Rodney Clark, was Mike Oliver. And uh, I've just been talking to uh, a gentleman uh, earlier uh, this evening who actually knows Mike. Uh, I do know Mike, and in fact, I, I spoke to him this morning. He's 98 years old very alert, but he was a key person in, uh, in Connors. Now, he also had a Bugatti, so he got to know uh, Rodney Clark, and he joined Connors, so joined Continental Cars, as it was then, um, and became the service manager. Uh, Mike Oliver was an ex-RAF pilot. He wasn't a train engineer, uh, but um, he carried out uh, active service flying planes uh, for the RAF, um, including in Malta in 41 and 42. Um, and although he wasn't an engineer uh, by training, he proved to be a very good engineer. And he led the development of the engines that, that uh, Connaught built. Now this picture was taken in 1999, at the time when the Continental Cars garage, uh, Connaught garage, was finally being closed. And they had a reunion there with a number of Connaught's cars and uh, Bugattis as well uh, came for the reunion. And this is Mike Oliver sitting in uh, the 10th of the Formula 2 A-types, uh, which belonged to, had belonged to John Young, who is the person standing next to him. John Young was raced this, this actual car in the 50s. So, 
that's two of the people. The third person was Kenneth McAlpine. Uh, this is the three people directly involved in addition to Tony Brooks. Now, Kenneth McAlpine was part of the uh, McAlpine construction family. Uh, he worked full-time in the, the uh, McAlpine uh, company, but uh, he was also a car enthusiast. And uh, as well as being a pilot in the RAF in the war, uh, he, which he had in common with the others, um, he was a, a keen racing driver and uh, he raced his Maserati. This is him. Uh, it's actually a picture from the front page of Motorsport uh, because he had won a race at Goodwood that day. Um, this is uh, him in his Maserati. And he took the Maserati along to Rodney Clark to prepare for racing. Uh, Kenneth McAlpine, he is also still alive. He's 98 as well. Um, and I have spoken to him, but not, not recently. I understand that he perhaps isn't as well as, as he was. Um, but the thing that uh, Kenneth McAlpine provided was enthusiasm uh, and the need for Continental cars to provide him with uh, a racing car. And to start with, it was the Maserati. Um, but they decided also that why don't we actually start building our own car? And this is what they decided to do. But of course, they needed finance. Well, Kenneth McAlpine was in a good position to help because of his uh, connection with uh, the McAlpine construction family. So he provided a, a, a significant part of the finance for Connors over the years. But in fact, he wasn't the only perverse person providing the, the uh, finance. Um, the British government did as well. They didn't intend to do, but at that time, after the war, uh, income tax uh, was on all earnings and at the rate of 90 pence in the pound, or thereabouts. Collins Engineering was formed, but was never actually registered as a company, but operated as Kenneth McAlpine, trading under the name of Connaught Engineering. So if you see Connaught Engineering Limited, it's incorrect. It was never actually registered as a company. But it was Kenneth McAlpine who was the support and financial support behind Connaught. So they decided to build a, a, a car. Uh, because at that time, they tried to find a, a British car, sports car, to uh, provide from the sell from their garage. But there, was, uh, there were uh, virtually no sports cars available of British manufacture uh, being made there, which were available for selling in the UK. After the war, there was a great push on export business. And so... Uh, most new cars were actually being exported. But when they were able to get a, uh, off to be provided with uh, Lee Francis uh, chassis and engine uh, complete, so it's a rolling chassis. And so they decided to acquire these from Lee Francis, they came to an arrangement with them, and build their own sports car. This is the L-Type. And the L, uh, as I understand it, stood for Lee Francis. Basically, it was a 14-horsepower uh, a Lee Francis sports model uh, without a body, 
and without a lot of the trimmings. And they uh, designed their own body, Connaught designed their own body, and they had a company called Leecroft locally uh, to uh, manufacture the body. Um, um, Mike Oliver got to, got to work on the engine and modified the engine, and they produced these uh, sports L-type Connaughts. This is the first one. Uh, Guy mentioned earlier that he is, has a Connaught. This is the car he owns, MPH329, the original car. Uh, it was completed in 1948, um, and its first win was a class win at Prescott. And this is the picture you'll see here, is uh, um, Kenneth McAlpine winning his class at the Prescott Hill Climb in 1949. Um, we, so I was talking to somebody earlier about safety and racing and things. You notice here, he's uh, competing in a hill climb with uh, not even a hat on, um, just and certainly no helmet. So the first Connaught was completed and they, in, in total they made eight of these Connaughts with this body. And they had a fair amount of success. Rodney Clark also raced one of these Connaughts, and here is a picture of the, the two of them, uh, Kenneth McAlpine leading Rodney Clark at Blanford, the circuit on the army camp there. And in this particular race, uh, is, they, were, they came first and second. So they had quite a lot of success. And this encouraged them to move on later to, uh, to looking into uh, building their own single-seater racing car. They also tried to make more of these Connaughts and sell more of the Connaughts. As I said, they built eight of these. They then decided, well, what we really need is a more sporting one, and we'll try and get into the US market. So they built uh, three cars, uh, the SR, L3SR model, um, which had the cycle wing bodies um, designed by them, built by Abbots of Farnham. Um, and they sold one to America and were very hopeful of selling a lot more, but unfortunately it never materialised and the other two were, were sold in the UK. This is one of the, these, the other two. Uh, this is a picture of uh, the car which is now owned by Andrew Millis. Um, there was a suggestion from somebody that Andrew Millis had indicated that he might be able to bring the car here today. but. Uh, I don't think that ever materialised. Uh, but uh, this is his car. And he, Andrew has actually owned this car since 1959. Uh, and this is as it was restored two or three years ago, as you appreciate that's in beautiful condition now. Um, so there were three of these. Connaught also decided to have another, find another uh, builder to... Uh, uh, bodybuilder to build another uh, different uh, body on one of the cars and they got Metalcraft of Lightbridge up in uh, Staffordshire um, to to build one. This was, uh, they weren't very pleased with it actually, it wasn't a drawing and it was rather a bulbous design but uh, again this car has been beautifully restored recently. This was one car which was partly restored uh, while my brother owned it, brother Duncan owned it and, uh, and it's been completed by Clive Sheriff, who, uh, as you will see from this picture, it has been beautifully restored 
Now this car is actually known as the Kenya car because soon after it was made it went out to Kenya and lived out there and raced out there. In addition to those 12 cars I mentioned, there were two more uh, L-type Connaughts. Um, one had a rather boxy body fitted to it, which wasn't very good, and the final one was sold without a body. Uh, they do still exist, both of those. And in fact, um, 13 of the 14 Connaughts, sports Connaughts, all exist. One of them, MPH 998, which had been owned by, owned by a a driver called John Lyons, um, went to America and it eventually disappeared. I believe it blew up and then but it disappeared and uh, no, every effort has been made to try and track it down, but it, it, it disappeared some years ago. So that was the 14 sports uh, road connaughts, sports race, sports come road connaughts. They were designed to be used on the road, but also for racing. As I said, Kenneth McAlpine was keen to carry on racing. And so they thought, well, we've built a, a sports car. Why don't we go on and build a, a, a single-seater racing car? So they built a Formula 2 car to the then current Formula 2, two-litre Formula 2. Um, and they completely designed this themselves. The engine was based on a Lee Francis engine, uh, not not the same engine that was in the sports car, uh, but one that had been designed for American midget racing. Uh, but this was highly modified by uh, Mike Oliver. The car was designed, it was to uh, Rodney Clark's design. And by this time, they started to set up a drawing office and produce detailed drawings of everything they were producing. Now this is a picture of uh, their first appearance, the first racing appearance at Castle Coombe. They had tested the car earlier. This is in October, the, in October 1950. They had tested the car earlier at, uh, at um, Silverstone and they'd taken the car onto the south circuit as it, or a bit of the south part of the circuit as it was then. We're testing the car and Kenneth McAlpine decided he wanted to have another drive in it quickly before lunch. He went out. And he was only supposed to do one lap because uh, they only had the circuit until 12 o'clock. After that, there was, a, uh, there was uh, access to it from local farmers. Unfortunately, Kenneth McAlpine was enjoying it so much, he carried on to do another lap. Unfortunately, finding a hay cart on the middle of the track. And uh, although he didn't hit the hay cart, the car came off worst and it hit something else and was damage. So that put back development a little bit. But by October that year, uh, they had completed the first car and it was, uh, it was their racing. And uh, this is the first appearance of the car. Kenneth McAlpine finished uh, second in the race to Sterling Moss, who was driving an HWM. And I'm sure Simon Taylor will tell you about that in, in, future, in his future talk. Uh, one thing they did do was, uh, was develop the engine, not only the design of it, but also the fuels they used. And they used uh, nitro as a, a mixture, uh, a part of the full fuel, uh, and different mixed different volumes, depending on whether it was gonna be a short race or long race, because the fuel consumptions uh, were very high for the fuel they used. 
In fact, um, I think the health and safety executive um, probably uh, would be a little bit more concerned about it now. Um, the secret fuel they were using would probably now cause serious problems. But at that time, it seemed to be that probably other teams were doing it as well. In fact, the Connaught Engine Test House became known as the Chemical Warfare Establishment. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting to note that uh, they had designed and built this car from scratch, and uh, a year or two later, Rodney Clark uh, reflected that. I'll read it to you. He said, uh, no one connected with the project had had any experience of building a car before. And looking back, it seems somewhat surprising that we ever had the courage to start. I think it was a case of ignorance being bliss. I feel certain that with the knowledge I have now, I would never have commenced such an undertaking with so little facilities as we had then. But they had a, a successful car. The car was actually very competitive. So they built more. And the first one they sold was to Ken Downing. And in uh, 1952, he started to race this car. Um, and one of his first races was uh, uh, at Chimay in Belgium. And this shows Ken Downing racing at Chimay in Belgium in June 1952. Um, and he was going very well. In fact, he led by some distance, but it started to rain. And on the last corner, he slid wide and uh, was overtaken by Paul Frere in that firm again, HWM. And uh, so he did finish second. But I think that the one thing that's of particular interest in this is the spectators. Is that a, a rope, I think, just holding them back? I think safety had uh, some way to go. And I, I don't think Jackie Stewart would have been terribly interested in, in racing there in those circumstances. But the Connaughts were very successful. And um, in the British Grand Prix that year, uh, they had four cars entered, and uh, Dennis Poor, seen here um, in, in one of the works Connaughts, he finished fourth, um, and fifth was Eric Thompson in another works Connaught, with Ken Downing in his own one also finishing the race, and Kenneth McAlpine as well. So all four cars started uh, the 85 lap race, and all of them finished. Uh, 248 miles, two and three quarter hours. I think Lewis Hamilton might have been a bit tired after doing that racing for that long. One thing that uh, was interesting about this car was the development of uh, Mike Oliver's was the air intake. This is a very bulbous air intake and was and caused some interest for uh, an interested spectator at one of the meetings. Now, he came up to talk to um, Mike Oliver and a couple of other of the uh, Connaught people who were working hard on the car. And uh, normally they would be very receptive to questions and things, but they were particularly busy at this, this moment. But the spectator asked them, uh, what's this, uh, this big bulbous thing on the side? Oh, that's, um, that's a MacGuffin, they said because they were concerned about uh, wanting to get on with what they were doing and uh, didn't want to get into a long conversation. The spectator looked in, ooh, that's a MacGuffin. Walked off seeming to be very happy. And so that always became known as the MacGuffin. 
but it was just actually an air intake for uh, helping to ram in uh, fuel, uh, air and fuel into the, into the engine. And it definitely worked. Now, there were a number of other people who raced these Connaughts, and, uh, and one of them was um, another person from around this area and a future world champion, Mike Halewood. He raced this car, he only raced Connaught once, um, and this is actually Kenneth McAlpine's car, but he, he raced it at Turnbury in August 1952, uh, and he won the race. So, uh, I think it was a race when Kenneth McAlpine wasn't actually available, which is why uh, he stepped in and won. Other successful or other drivers, uh, well-known drivers who drove Connaughts, say A-type Connaught around that time, included Sterling Moss, who uh, raced it two or three times. He didn't have a lot of success, but this is a picture of him racing in the Italian Grand Prix in 1952. Um, interesting story about how they got there. Um, no big luxurious transporters or anything. Uh, but they were a bit late in getting the three cars ready. So in the end they decided uh, we, we better fly them down to Milan. So they flew the three cars down in a Bristol transport aircraft to Milan. Um, and they got there and then there was a question of, well, how do we get the cars? We haven't a transporter. How do we get them to, to Monza? Well, there was a very helpful Italian policeman on his motorbike. Follow me, he said. And so, Sterling Moss, uh, Kenneth McAlpine and Dennis Port hopped into the three cars and shot off down the road, 40-odd miles, um, and at 75 miles an hour, and managed just to keep up with the policeman, and arrived at the circuit, even though it was getting dark, and... Story. <laughs> and even, even though it was getting dark, um, they arrived there in time and uh, without being stopped by any other policeman. But uh, in the race itself, um, they didn't have a lot of success, but they did pick up their starting money. And Stanley Moss got up to seventh place at one point, but in the end retired. As I said, Connaughts were actually quite successful, um, very successful, particularly in British races. Um, and there were quite a lot of British Formula 2 and Formula Lever races around this time. Tony Rolt um, was uh, one of the people who had a number of victories driving um, the Rob Walker owned car. Rob Walker owned one of these and he also owned a, a, B, uh, a Formula 1 car later. Uh, but Tony Rolt had a number of uh, victories. This is a picture of him competing at... Uh, at uh, Crystal Palace um, in May 1953. Um, and this was actually the uh, ex-Ken Downing car. Ken Downing had decided to uh, retire and move to South Africa. And actually, out of interest, you know, the, the, this is also the, the Connaught that um, Tony Brooks first had his first ever single-seater driving when it was owned by John Risley Pritchard. Uh, but that was uh, a couple of years later. One of the other owners of a, uh, an A-type Connaught was Johnny Cleese, Belgium. He was a, 
a jazz musician, actually, and again, like a lot of people in those days, uh, raced uh, for his own pleasure uh, as a, as a part-time enthusiast. Uh, a picture of him here racing at Silverstone um, in his yellow car. And you may have seen the yellow Connaught racing in uh, historic racing, because it still appears and has done a number of times recently. And it is yellow because of the, the curie belge colours of uh, Johnny Cleese. Now there's an interesting story about uh, this particular car. It was at the uh, Connaught uh, Works um, at uh, Send, uh, being worked on. Um, and uh, Johnny Cleese's mechanic was a, a man called uh, Lucien Bianchi. It turned out later that he was a, a very successful racing driver. And he, in fact, went on to win Le Mans in 1968, driving a Ford GT40 with the, the great, as I say great, because I have a great admiration for him, Pedro Rodriguez, um, a great driver. But uh, Lucien Bianchi at this time was a mechanic for Johnny Cleese. Um, and they'd been working on the car, they had it up on the jacks, they were running the engine and the wheel reels, rear wheels going around to warm up the transmission as well. And they lowered it down, Lucy and Rilshi was sitting in the driver's seat, the mechanic shot off down the A3. The noise disappeared down the road and they could hear it going down. You knew know these places better than I did. I'm not a local person. They're down by Ripley and round and eventually he came back about 15, 20 minutes later, um, not realising that although it was sort of accepted on the continent to drive racing cars on the road, it wasn't allowed in this country. Um, and I think uh, it was fortunate that the police um, were a lot more understanding in Guildford in those days than probably they are now. Other drivers who raced these cars included uh, Roy Salvadori. Now, this is a picture of the, uh, uh, at uh, Snetterton. Roy Salvadori is the, uh, the person on the, on the right, uh, with uh, Kenneth McAlpine next to him. And another Connaught driver who drove the A-Type, but also later drove the sports racing car, uh, another local man, John Coombs. He's the man on the left. I'm sorry, I don't know who the person is he's talking to, and if anybody knows, I'd be very interested to know afterwards. Um, as I say, they, uh, these were all a, a, a number of the well-known people who were racing Connaughts around that time. Uh, there was another one who was probably not very well-known at the time, uh, Leslie Marr. Um, this is Leslie Marr in his, his Connaught, um, racing at the Prescott Hill Climb in 1954. When he wanted to acquire a Connaught, he, he contacted uh, Rodney Clark and said, you know, I'd like to buy one of your, your, your racing cars. Now, Rodney Clark was very fairly protective. He wanted his cars to be driven by uh, well-known people. And he replied too politely but he replied to Leslie Maher, gently pointing out that his policy was to sell to well-known named drivers. Um, now, Les Leslie Maher, he was, wasn't one for giving in, and he wrote back, uh, 
And his reply went something like this. I still want to buy one of your cars, and I promise to be good, not do anything silly, do as I'm told, and here's a check for £3,000. <laughs> now, now, Johnny Johnson, who was the uh, chief draftsman at the time, you remembered Rodney Clark coming into the drawing office with a letter in his hand, uh, laughing, and he showed him the check and commented, how do you refuse that? Anyway, yeah, Rodney, um, Leslie Maher acquired the, this car, and uh, he competed in it and, uh, and had a lot of pleasure. And in fact, you know, he became a good friend of Connaught and later acquired a, a, a Grand Prix car as well. Now, at the end of uh, 1953, remember we'd had Formula 2 was the World Championship Grand Prix formula at uh, that time, 52 and 53. At the end of 53, so for 54, the new Grand Prix formula was for two and a half litre single uh, racing cars. Now, Connaught wanted to carry on, Kenneth McAlpine wanted to carry on, but the, there wasn't really an opportunity to stretch the uh, uh, existing engine, the two-litre engine. It was really as far, stretched as far as it could be. So they decided, well, well, why don't we build our own car, build a, a brand new car? And uh, Connaught, if, if nothing else, were not enterprising. They were very enterprising. And the design they came up with uh, was to use the planned uh, Coventry Climax V8 2.5-litre Godiva engine, which Coventry Climax were designing and building. And they were, they were going to supply it to uh, Kieft as well and HWM, uh, and other people were looking at it too. And so Connaught designed the first monocoque rear-engined uh, Grand Prix car in, in about 1953. That was uh, some years before Colin Chapman completed his uh, Lotus 25 in 1962. So this was the design and it was to, to suit the Coventry Climax engine and Connaught went as far as uh, designing and actually manufacturing parts for the transaxle uh, for this uh, a special transaxle which they were going to uh, need for this, but to use this engine as a rear, uh, in a rear engine car. Unfortunately, Coventry Climax were misled by Maserati because when Coventry Climax built the engine, they built one and tested it, and they built parts for six engines. Um, when they tested it, the power they were getting out of it wasn't too bad but it was said to be significantly less than Maserati were said to be getting for their Formula One engine. Um, unfortunately, they felt, well, we can't compete with Maserati, so we, we don't want to compete. So Coventry Climax pulled the project. Um, as it turned out later, Maserati were actually producing probably, I don't know, 40 brake horsepower less than what they said they were producing, and the Coventry Climax engine may well have been competitive. So Connaught uh, um, had to come up with a more conventional design quickly uh, to enable them to compete. So they were the, the design was to be uh, front engines, rear wheel drive, uh, single seater. It wasn't that conventional, 
because they designed the streamlined car. Now, many of you may well have, um, as, as some of the older people here may well remember, a dinky tie, Connaught. Did anybody ever have one of those? I still have mine. This is an original one of mine. I haven't bought it off eBay recently, although you can do. Um, but uh, this is a very famous dinky toy. And um, they designed their own uh, single-seater, uh, front engine, rear-wheel drive, but, they but Rodney Clark designed this streamlined body as well. Quite a, it, this wasn't a copy of Mercedes, it was quite a, an advanced design. And um, Mercedes at the same time were developing their own uh, front, en front engine uh, streamlined car, the, the W196, which appeared in 1954, uh, about the same time as the Formula One Connaught appeared. Connaught also had to find another engine as well, because with no Coventry Climax engine, they had to uh, hunt around to find another one. And in the end, what they did was uh, they went to Geoffrey Taylor at Alta, and he had a design. Uh, had, he had already designed some engines. He had a design for a two and a half liter four cylinder car uh, engine. And uh, Connaught took this on and uh, um, Mike Oliver modified the design and in fact really created a completely new engine but based on the Alta design. Um, the fact that they had exclusive rights on this design probably, uh, and again, Simon will Taylor will tell you more about it next, in, in weeks to come, um, that really stopped HWM developing uh, a Formula One car because they'd used an Alta engine in their Formula Two car but didn't really have an engine for Formula One. So they never built a Formula One car for this, for this formula. Connaught designed this car and uh, it appeared in 1954, but it had gone through a fair amount of development. And one of the things that they did, and as Guy mentioned earlier, is they used wind tunnels. Now this wind tunnel that, uh, this is a picture of the, the model of the, the um, streamlined Connaught uh, being tested in the wind tunnel um, was, um, was at um, the Kingston Technical College and they used this. This was after they actually had tried to build their own wind tunnel. Again, forward thinking, uh, despite having not much money, uh, they actually built their own wind tunnel in a shed at the back of the factory. The wind tunnel was, uh, the fan for the wind tunnel uh, was driven by a Ford V8 pilot engine. And they did use it, but very little. Uh, and the main reason for that was that uh, it was very noisy and it disturbed the neighbours. And uh, they decided that uh, it wasn't a, a great idea to carry on with that. Uh, not only did they use a wind tunnel to test the, uh, the shape of the body, but they had their own engine test, test house. There's a picture of uh, Mike Oliver uh, testing one of the, um, uh, the Formula One Alta base Connaught engines. And I'll just point out one thing which Mike Oliver mentioned to me. 
You can see here the air intakes. They have actually got some rubber tubing with the Jubilee clips. You may think that was fairly crude, but what it was actually, he was testing out different lengths of air intake to um, try and hone the, uh, the right characteristics for what he was wanting. So the, con the engine was available uh, now and, uh, and they were uh, ready for Formula One. Uh, at the same, around the same time, in 19, beginning of 1954, uh, they had realized that they had left over a number of parts from the Formula Two car. So uh, Rodney Clark had the idea of, oh, why don't we build a sports car using some of these parts? And they designed and built um, the ALSR, uh, sports racing car. Now this used uh, a modified Formula 2 type chassis, uh, had the same Formula 2 engine, except they reduced the size uh, of the engine down to 1500cc, so it would be competitive in, uh, in the up to 1500cc class. And they built two cars uh, with bodies similar to this, um, this is, this is the first car, which was initially owned by John Coons, and he raced successfully. Uh, and the second car was from a Kenneth McAlpine. It had a similar body, although the uh, headlights were slightly closer together. Um, it was interesting, I, I was talking to somebody earlier who had a Lotus Connaught sports car. Well, the idea of that came from John Coons. He had the, this Lotus, uh, this, uh, uh, sports racing Connaught, and he decided that uh, the engine was very good, but it wasn't quite as handling, or it wasn't as light as the Lotus uh, that was uh, competing. He was competing against, so he took the engine out of the Connaught, put it in a, a brand new Lotus um, Mark Eight, and um, and continued to compete in sport car, sports car racing, and then sold. The, his existing car on. Uh, another engine, 1500cc engine, was fitted into this car and it was driven as seen here by Les Leston, but other people who drove it were Sterling Moss, uh, Archie Scott Brown, uh, who had a strong connection with Connaught later. Um, they both, they all raced uh, this car. Uh, Kenneth McAlpine also raced his car, but in, this is 54. In 55, though, Kenneth McAlpine decided that he'd like to compete at Le Mans. And so over the winter, they replaced the body of Kenneth McAlpine's ALSR sports racing car with a more aerodynamic body, similar to the Formula One body. Uh, and this is the car uh, which, uh, with Kenneth McAlpine driving it at Le Mans, in 1955, where he competed with Eric Thompson. Um, Eric Thompson had driven for Aston Martin as well as Connaught before that. Um, and they were going quite well um, and were running third in the class. But unfortunately, after six hours, the car suffered some engine problems and the car was retired. Um, this car um, was, unfortunately, was later uh, crashed and ridden off. It was one of the few comments which doesn't still exist. It was being driven by uh, Bill Smith, a young up-and-coming driver, at Dundrod in the TT in 1955.
in September that year, and unfortunately, he uh, is no longer with us. At this time, um, 1955, uh, Connaught had been racing the uh, Formula One car with Kenneth McAlpine and, uh, and others. Um, but Kenneth McAlpine was getting to uh, want to retire from racing. Uh, also, the financial situation has become increasingly difficult and the hope for support from British industry was not forthcoming. Um, so the plan, Rodney Clark and Kenneth McAlpine came up with a plan that they would cut back on costs significantly um, and freeze the design of the cars and uh, carry on racing, but financing it through the starting money that they hoped to be able to get. Connaught, at its height, had had 40-odd employees and had eight people in the drawing office. So it was a, a significant operation. Now, this is a picture of uh, um, Johnny Johnson in the middle there um, and Derek White on the right. Um, in the drawing office with their model of the, uh, um, uh, of the Formula One Connaught, which they'd used in, in testing in the, uh, in the wind tunnels. Um, unfortunately, uh, when they decided that they're going to have to cut costs, one of the things that Rodney Clark decided to do was to, was to close the drawing office. And Johnny Johnson, who was chief draftsman, who'd been there since 1950, uh, and the others were, were people who were being made redundant. Johnny Johnson is the, per Johnny Johnson is the person in the middle. He, he actually has written a book on his days at Connaught. I don't know whether some of you uh, may have seen it, to, to Draw a Long Line. Very good book. But it's specifically about the, the technical and design side over his period of around 1950 to 55. Um, so that's Johnny Johnson in the middle. Um, he would very much been uh, uh, Rodney Clark's right-hand man uh, in the design side. And the person on the right is Derek White. Um, Derek White, after he left Connaught, he went to Jaguar. And later in the mid-60s, he became chief designer at Cooper's and uh, was involved in the design of the, the Formula One car there. I think maybe the connection as to why he was brought in was partly because of Roy Salvadori, who was then at Cooper's. Uh, wasn't he team manager at Cooper, I think? And he brought, I think Derek had an influence in bringing Derek White in because Roy Salvadori had been a uh, works Formula One driver with Connaught uh, in 1953. So, um, the drawing office was, was being closed. Things were not looking good. Um, but sometimes some things happen, uh, hopefully for the better. And then came Syracuse. Now this is the Formula One car with the uh, streamlined body removed and uh, replaced with a conventional open wheel body. Various things about the streamlined body. Um, it, it was very good aerodynamically, but the problems seemed to be it was, it was slightly heavy. It was uh, expensive to repair, which 
didn't fit in with what they were doing then. Um, and the third problem it had is when you took the body off and put it down side alongside the car, you know, cold, windy paddock in Britain, it tended to blow away. So they abandoned the idea of the uh, uh, streamlined body um, and uh, they replaced it with this. So <clears throat> at the end of September 1955, they'd cut him back on costs. Um, but they got an invitation from the organizers of the Syracuse Grand Prix in southern Sicily uh, to enter two cars in the, in the race there in October. To start with, uh, Rodney Clark turned it down. Uh, it's a long way to go, would be expensive, and really they've just been looking to cut costs and weren't interested. Uh, no other British team wanted to go, Van Mool and PRM. Uh, didn't want to go either. Um, and so the Syracuse organizers, they got Maserati works team there, they got Gordini's coming, private Maseratis and private Ferrari, uh, but they wanted some alternative competition and they would like to have a green car. So they persisted with Rodney Clark and telegrams went between the two. And then uh, Rodney Clark telegrammed them back and said, if you pay me a thousand pounds per car start money, I'll bring two cars. Syracuse accepted it. I thought this would be a nice uh, competition or not competition for, for the Maseratis um, and agreed to it. So Connaught then had to decide how they were going to, in two weeks, organize themselves to get down to the southern point of Sicily, 2,000 miles away. Uh, the cars needed preparing. Um, they had no drivers uh, because the usual drivers weren't available. Uh, people like Tony Rolt, Roy Salvadori, people who they would normally call upon. Kenneth McAlpine couldn't fit, fit in. He was still working. So they selected Les Leston, who'd uh, been driven the sports car, sports racing Connaught, to drive one of the cars. And then they thought, well, why don't we try and find a, a young, up-and-coming uh, British driver um, who might be able to... He, he won't cost very much, I suppose, was one reason. Um, but uh, they were always keen to encourage British drivers. So uh, the person they selected was somebody who'd had three or four drives in a Formula 2 Connaught, um, driven the sports racing Connaught once, uh, so they did know him, uh, but he really was, lacked great experience and it would be a risk. His name, of course, was Tony Brooks. Tony Brooks, um, clearly the Syracuse race would have an opportunity for him to make his name. Um, Tony Brooks, of course, later uh, went on to win six World Championship Grand Prix. And I think the significant thing about the Grand Prix that he won were that most of them were on the, the classic difficult Grand Prix circuits. His six wins were at Spa, the old Spa, the old Nürburgring, Monza, Reims, Aintree, and the uh, Berlin circuit at Arvus. Uh, 
there couldn't be a, a more impressive range of circuits to win your six Grand Prix. Tony Brooks had actually never sat in a Formula One car before, so it was a great gamble. But uh, Rodney Clark rang him up. He was at his uh, dental school in Manchester, where he was training to be a dentist, and asked him if he'd drive uh, at Syracuse. He had to get permission from his uh, professor, who was very understanding, and gave him the uh, uh, time off to do it, provided he carried on revising. Uh, so, um, there we were. Uh, the cars were being prepared. Um, they had two drivers. Um, and they had transporters, which needed to be prepared as well. But by now, they only had a week to get there. Transporters? Um, two 1938 AC X Green Line buses for transporters. One car in each. Uh, maximum speed 50 miles, 55 miles an hour on the flat. Um, but Connaught didn't have, couldn't afford the luxury of uh, uh, anything better. Uh, but they provided a workhorse. So the two uh, transporters, buses, were readied. And the Saturday before the Syracuse Grand Prix, they set off uh, for the coast to catch the overnight ferry to Dunkirk. Time was pretty tight, but there was five days or so to get there. 2,000 miles should be okay. Unfortunately, when they got to Dunkirk, um, they didn't have the right papers. So Mike Oliver, uh, with uh, one of the mechanics who spoke French, Joe Wilkins, drove off down to Lyon to uh, get the write papers, drive back, um, and uh, it was a day and a half before they were able to release the, the transporters, leaving them not a lot of time to get to Syracuse. The total team of Connaught for the race consisted of um, uh, two drivers, um, John Risley Pritchard, who I mentioned earlier, had owned the and owned the A4 Connaught uh, that uh, Tony Brooks had driven before. He went as a friend and as a help. Five mechanics between the two cars and Mike Oliver, who drove down himself in his Ford Zephyr. So there were just nine of them in total. Um, the two drivers and uh, John Risley Pritchard, they flew down to Catania Airport in Sicily uh, and got to the circuit by, by the Thursday. Unfortunately, uh, to cut a long story short, uh, despite driving um, as hard as they could overnight, sharing the driving and having to uh, repair one of the buses which ran out of brakes, it was uh, Friday night, Saturday morning before they arrived at uh, Syracuse. Uh, by then, of course, uh, practice had started on the, on the Friday and um, Maseratis had put themselves clearly on front of the, of the grid. Uh, but there was still Saturday's practice to go. And Tony Brooks sat in the car for the first time, first time he'd ever sat in the Connaught, this Formula One Connaught, sat in it. He liked it, actually. He was very complimentary about the car, uh, the feel of the driving position. And he commented later to me that uh, 
Uh, it was obviously being designed by somebody who knew how a, a Grand Prix or a car, a racing car, should be. They all got the, the ergonomics uh, of, it, of it right. So uh, he was, Rodney, um, Tony Brooks was in the open wheel car and Les Leston was driving one of the uh, streamlined cars. So they went out to practice on the Saturday afternoon. Surprisingly, particularly to the Italians, Tony Brooks went faster than uh, Musso and Villarizzi had gone in the Maseratis. Uh, and this was only after just a few laps uh, of practice. The only practice he had actually had was uh, the day before when the, the car, the cars, the racing cars hadn't arrived. The three of them, the two drivers and John Risley Pritchard, decided, well, we better try and learn the track. And it was a three mile circuit on a closed uh, public roads. So they hired three Vespa scooters. It didn't uh, show them how, to, how fast to go around the track, but it at least showed them where the track went. So that was their only experience of the track before they went out. So Tony Brooks had gone faster than Maseratis, who rushed out again, hopped, Musso and Villarizzi hopped into their cars and thrashed out again and did manage to uh, beat Tony Brooks's time. Before the race, uh, Tony Brooks uh, had only done 16 laps in this car at Syracuse in practice. Mike Oliver was very concerned that they didn't wear the cars out, they were short of spares, and of course, the thousand pounds per car depended on them starting. So when it came to the race itself, Tony Brooks was third on the grid alongside the two Maseratis of Luigi Musso and Luigi Villarisi, with Maseratis, Ferraris and Gordinis uh, further back. And Les Leston was further back as well. He'd had some troubles, mechanical troubles in practice, but he was there on the grid anyway. So come Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, the race started and uh, Tony Brooks took it steadily to start with and was running in around fifth or sixth place. But gradually he moved forward and started dicing with the, with the Maseratis and he diced with Musso a bit and eventually, I think this great uh, Michael Turner picture shows it, shows Tony Brooks going round the, uh, the hairpin bend. Uh, with Musso and Villarisi behind him. But Tony Brooks gradually went into the lead. And by the 16th lap, uh, they stopped battling with the Maserati uh, and gradually Tony Brooks pulled away. It was a 70 lap race, two and three quarter hours. Uh, and the, the Italian hopes gradually reduced. They raised a bit when after about two thirds of the race, the, the engine noise from the Connaught um, went a little bit off. But it didn't slow Tony Brooks down, it was just a, a broken exhaust manifold. And uh, so Tony Brooks carried on, Mike Oliver put out the slow down signs. But by the end of the race, Tony Brooks crossed the finishing line to the chequered flag, 50 seconds ahead of Musso, and two laps ahead of Villarisi in the second, who was third in the second of the Maseratis. A fantastic victory. And I think it, it certainly shocked the Italians, but I think it shocked everybody 
back in the UK as well. Nobody was expecting it. It was a fantastic performance. Um, I was asked once by somebody uh, at one of the talks I gave, what would you attribute the result to, the success? Was it the car, the engine, uh, the driver? I think the car was very good, it handled well. I think the engine was well-tuned, but it wasn't always as reliable as it might have been. But certainly, Tony Brooks's ability and his skill was a major factor in that victory. The Italians, as I say, weren't very happy. And uh, the organizers insisted that the engine was stripped down and checked to see that it complied with the two and a half litre formula. This was done and it complied. Uh, it was uh, quite legitimate. And so the Connaught uh, people, Tony Brooks, were awarded their prize, their, the awards and their starting money at the, uh, after, in the ceremony at the end of the race. Uh, after the race, the uh, transporters drove home, drove home slightly more leisurely than they went down, uh, but they came back to a fantastic welcome. Uh, Tony Brooks and uh, Les Leston uh, flew back and uh, Tony Brooks had his uh, dentistry books out in front of him, revising on the flight back. Uh, that's just how the story goes and I believe it is true. I believe it's true. Um, so he returned home. <clears throat> At the end of, after the race um, uh, and the success, the awards started to come in. Um, and at the, the end of year, uh, one of the end of year award ceremonies, the Ferodo Trophy was awarded to Connaught. And it's awarded, um, the Ferodo Gold Trophy is awarded for the most outstanding British contribution to the sport of motor racing. And I think everybody agreed that it was very well earned. However, what Rodney Clark had hoped was that um, there would be a greater increase of support from, or there would be some support from British industry. Unfortunately, at the celebration at the Connaught uh, factory uh, a month later, uh, after the wine had flowed, uh, Rodney Clark got up and he said, everyone is very pleased about this victory, but no one seems to want to help us do it again. For that was probably the last race by a work-centred Connaught. We are completely broke. And that was reported in motorsport at the end of the year by uh, the great Dennis uh, Jenkinson. Fortunately, well, unfortunately, um, unfortunately to start with, they hadn't got any money. Tony Brooks, although offered a, a drive for 50, 1956, decided, uh, regrettably from his point of view, to uh, sign for BRM because he felt there was a lot more finance and support there than there would be at Connaught. So uh, Connaught um, decided they would try and carry on, picking up start money, and that uh, they would drive continued to, to race with uh, British drivers. Uh, Les Leston, who had raced at Syracuse, was one of them. And at the beginning of 1956, he's seen here 
uh, at Goodwood in the Easter Monday meeting, driving actually B1, the, uh, the car that Tony Brooks graced at Syracuse. Now this, uh, I think, is a great shot. And in fact, Mike Oliver, when I showed him some photos a couple of years ago, he said, that shows uh, what a great car the Connaught was. It's neutral handling can be seen. There's Les Leston driving around, uh, cornering the four-wheel drift, um, and it was a very good handling car. Um, the engine was stretched as far as it could be and uh, produced um, reasonable power. So this is Les Leston uh, racing the car. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I actually bumped into Les Leston's son, Nick, um, and together with his grandson, Ollie, who was actually racing uh, in historic racing at Alton Park. And we were talking about his father and, and uh, Connaught, and he reminded me of the race the following year uh, when Les Leston rose, drove this car at Syracuse in the Syracuse Grand Prix in April 1957, when unfortunately a drive shaft broke. It flayed round, damaged the fuel tank, fuel spilled out, caught fire, and Les Leston was burnt as he jumped out of the car before it stopped. Um, but he was burnt. And they reminded me that, of course, one of the great things that Les Leston did, he learned from this, was to go on and develop the fireproof overalls, which he became famous for. Uh, and this was as a result of the crash at uh, Syracuse in 57. Um, it also triggered uh, Les Leston's reducing his racing. He carried on racing, and maybe some of you remember him racing a Lotus Elite, Daddy-O. Um, but he reduced his uh, Formula One racing. So that was uh, Les Leston. At the same race, another of the British drivers that, uh, that uh, Connaught employed was uh, Archie Scott Brown. Uh, here he is seen at that meeting in 56, leading Sterling Moss in the Maserati to a 50F and Mike Hawthorne in the Formula One BRM. Uh, he led them for a number of laps. Unfortunately, he did retire with engine trouble. But he was one of the British drivers that Connaught supported. They, they carried on racing during the year, and in, at, uh, towards the end of the year, 1956, Italian Grand Prix, they took three cars down to, to uh, Monza. Uh, they were to be driven by uh, Les Leston, uh, Jack Fairman um, and um, Archie Scott Brown was to drive the third car. Unfortunately, as probably some of you know, Archie Scott Brown was actually severely handicapped. He had two club feet and only one hand. But he was as fast and as capable a, dri as dr a driver as anybody. I've seen where he is, his competition, where he's raced uh, competitively against uh, Sterling Moss and other people. So uh, they managed to get Ron Flockhart, who was there supposedly to drive a BRM, which wasn't available. Um, and he um, took over the third car. In the race, uh, the, uh, all three cars started. 
and uh, there were a few retirements, but through steady and persistent and careful driving, uh, two of the Connaughts managed to finish. And Ron Flockhart finished third in the Italian Grand Prix in 1956. Now, this um, performance by Ron Flockhart, he was the first British driver in a British car to finish on the podium in the Continental World Championship Grand Prix. So Connaught were ahead of BRM and Bramble in achieving that. I think one of the things that uh, Ron Flockhart had uh, benefited from, and he was a great uh, careful driver, because he'd actually won Le Mans earlier in the, earlier in the year, driving a Jaguar D-Type for uh, the Acuria Cos. He'd won it with Ninian Sanderson. Uh, so his expertise from that sort of uh, event was certainly uh, of, of major assistance in them achieving that. The end of 56, beginning of 50, over the winter of 57, Connaught was still hoping to carry on. And they carried on development. They were always being innovative. And this picture uh, in the factory, um, a couple of interesting things here. Clearly, they were hoping to carry on through 57. The first thing they did was uh, to try and develop a new body, the dart um, toothpaste tube shape for the B-type. That there is the, uh, the body buck for the B-type. So this is photo was taken towards the end of 56, early 57. So that was one thing they were doing. Uh, the second thing they were doing is they were designing a space frame version of the front-engined uh, Formula One B-type Connaught called the C-type. Uh, so they had started work on actually building that. And the third thing they did was started to build another rear-engined uh, Formula One car with a space frame. Now I mentioned earlier with the monocoque car, they built a transaxle. They did. And this is one of the transaxles which had actually been completed. That is there sitting in the, in the workshop. Uh, and this on the right is the space frame rear engine car work being done on to, to build the, the chassis. They, it was never completed and actually was uh, dismantled uh, before anybody else uh, acquired, was able to acquire it. But that is the uh, space frame rear end. So they continued to be innovative, even though they had no drawing office at this time, and the design work was actually done on the shop floor. So Connaught tried to carry on. And uh, I mentioned earlier the uh, Goodwood race where uh, Stuart Lewis Evans won at uh, 57 Easter Monday meeting. And then they took the, car, the uh, three of the cars, actually, to Monaco uh, in May 57. They took three cars. The idea was to have two in the race and one for uh, testing so as not to wear the, the race cars out during practice. Uh, they managed to, to qualify, because in those days only 16 cars were allowed to qualify for the Monaco Grand Prix. And uh, Stuart Lewis Evans finished fourth. These were the first points that he ever achieved in a, a Grand Prix uh, World Championship race. 
he finished uh, fourth um, and uh, in a race uh, won by Fangio and uh, uh, with actually Stuart, um, not Stuart, with actually Tony Brooks finishing second in the Van Wall. Um, the, the second Connaught of Ivy Bure, um, unfortunately retired during the race. This turned out to be the last time that a works Connaught appeared at a race. Unfortunately, the financial situation became increasingly difficult. There was no further investment from the motoring industry. Uh, race organizers um, were reducing the starting money. They, they were quite powerful in those days and they were reducing the starting money that they were providing for cars and particularly for the less uh, popular cars. So, uh, but they were reducing the money they were providing as start money. There were disputes, therefore, between the teams and the organisers. And so some of the, the races that year, the Grand Prix, were actually cancelled. The result of that was loss of starting money. There was, so there was going to be less income. Rodney Clark, obviously in discussion with Kenneth McAlpine and Mike Oliver, realised that the game was up. And on the 31st of May 1957, Rodney Clark issued a press statement saying they were closing the racing operation of Connaught Engineering. And there was to be no uh, turning back on that. In September that year, um, there was a mass auction, three-day auction, over 1,100 lots. The cars that remained, the spares, the gearboxes, the engines, the machine tools, any other bits and pieces were auctioned off in the auction in September that year. Um, it turned out that uh, two of the cars, actually, the B-types, were, were bought by one B.C. Eccleston. And he, uh, his intention wasn't to race cars, although he had raced cars before that, um, but was to help support Stuart Lewis Evans, who he was a friend and supporter of. Um, so he bought two of the cars and they took them down to the Tasman series uh, that winter. And they actually took them again in 58 to uh, Goodwood, uh, the, the Easter Monday meeting where Archie Scott Brown and Stuart Lewis Evans raced the cars. But by then they weren't really competitive and they were very much a, a middle of the, the grid team. They actually took the cars to Monaco. So in fact, they only took one car to Monaco. And with drivers uh, Paul Emery, um, some of you may have heard of him, Emerson fame, um, but he was also a, a racing driver. And his, the connection with Emery and Paul Emery and Connell was the fact that Paul Emery's uh, workshop was behind the Connell workshop at the back. So uh, he obviously knew Connell's. And he, he uh, Bruce Kessler, from, who was an American, uh, were down to uh, try and qualify the cars for Monaco. One BC Eccleston is said also actually to have taken the, one of the cars, taken the car out in practice at Monaco. Uh, and he uh, did a couple of laps. To be honest, to be fair to him, 
it wasn't a serious attempt to qualify. Paul Emery and Bruce Gessler were trying hard to qualify. But uh, that was, I think, uh, um, Bernie Eccleston's only appearance at a actual appearance at the Grand Prix. But the cars were out of date and uh, the racing of uh, Connaught's was drawing to an end. And in fact, Connaught's engineering itself had stopped. But I mentioned earlier the space frame Formula One car, the C-Type. After the auction, and the C-Type wasn't in the auction, Rodney Clark kept it back. After the auction, the car was completed. And it was said to have been tested and be at least two seconds a lap quicker at Silverstone than the uh, conventional B-Type. Well, um, it did appear in a, a period uh, uh, Grand Prix. Paul Emery acquired the car and in 1959, he took the car to the American Grand Prix, where the American Bob Sade uh, was down to drive the car. They had problems during practice, and he'd, he was on the grid, but uh, um, not very competitively. And uh, in fact, um, he retired on the first lap with, uh, he had brake trouble and uh, spun off. and. Uh, so that was the last appearance of a Connaught in period Grand Prix racing. I, I will finish with one other um, unsuccessful uh, appearance, actually of the same car, because uh, the Connaught, um, the C-type Connaught stayed in, uh, well, it was in America, it came home and was modified and rebuilt, but it was taken to uh, Indianapolis in 1962, where um, the person who bought it, a bloke called Pierre de Villiers, uh, tried to qualify it. Uh, they had a lot of problems with it, and uh, although Jack Fairman and Bill Cheeseborough, who was an American, uh, also tried to qualify it, uh, the de Villiers special, as it was called, not a Connaught, didn't qualify. So, 57, Fangio won the World Championship in the Maserati. Over the next 50 years, um, all but eight of the World cha Championships, Constructors' Championships, have been won by British-based teams. Um, Ferrari have won eight times, but all others, all the other World Championship, Constructors' Championships, have been won by British-based teams. The four people uh, who were key are uh, Ronnie Clark, unfortunately, died in 1979. Mike Oliver, he is 98. As I was telling somebody, I actually spoke to him on the phone this morning. Um, he is uh, remarkably alert. Kenneth McAlpine is 98. And Tony Brooks is a mere 87. Um, I think Connaught's uh, contribution was its support of British drivers. Um, all, if not most, uh, most if not all, of the, the drivers in the 50s, uh, British drivers, actually raced Connaught's. So I think it is fair to say that Connaught really was the start of Britain's Grand Prix dominance. Thank you.
I think we've all learned one heck of a lot about Connaught cars tonight. Fred, that was a really insightful, detailed analysis of a great British constructor. Thank you very much indeed. We've all appreciated it. Thank you. Now, I'm sure. There must be questions. Local racing car constructor down the road. Who would like to kick off? Oh, um, the name came from Con and Ort. Con being the beginning of continental cars, and Ort being a distortion of automobile. So Con Ort, uh, and that's how the name arrived. There was a story that there was an Irish connection, but I don't believe it. Um, when I was 19, I, I joined Connaughts after they'd finished racing and uh, had a lot of fun there. I actually sold, I think, an L3 sports car that was left over, probably in about 62. And we couldn't get rid of this wretched thing. It was a bit of an ugly beast. But eventually we sold it, I think, for about £400 uh, to a gentleman who came back. He was a tea planter, lived in Godalming, got rid of this thing. We drank champagne for a week. Uh, sadly, month, six weeks later, he came back into the showroom. I was then uh, the young sales manager and he wanted to sell the car back. So I shuffled my feet a bit and said, well, you know, we've got rather a lot of stock at the moment, but um, we took it on sale or return and we sold it through Bob Hicks in Old Woking who had a few sports cars at that time. So got out of it and paid him his money. I think he got about 300 pounds back or something. But we were rid of the car, which was a bit of a blessing. The other thing I would add, I spoke this morning to John Turner, who's 94, and he bought that last Connaught, right, with Paul Emery. They did a deal, they paid 750 pounds for it and took it to the States to get the starting money, which they did. Uh, and he was a great friend of Paul Emery's, who rightly, you say, built behind Connaught's. And he used to test the Emerson, which was sold to Keep National Belge. Uh, they built the Formula Junior cars and I think a couple of Formula One cars. And Paul used to drive them round the Connaught building, round the petrol pumps, because it was a very big filling station at the time, uh, and he would test the Formula One car around there, much to the consternation of people buying a gallon of cheap. <laughs> but I spoke to John this morning, and I told him I was coming here, and he actually is 94, and he raced at Le Mans. He, uh, he raced an AC Bristol in, I think, 55. I think they won or came second in their class. And this, uh, when, when is it, a week on... A week this coming weekend, I think the Le Mans race, he's been invited back to drive his car in a, in a parade, classic parade. So that's John. And he also raced an LMB Popular. You may remember some of you with a split axle at the front, supercharged, um, and various other things. Um, and there we are. And I got used to all the drivers coming in to Connaught's uh, after they finished. Jim Clark drove for Alan Brown was Connaught Cars, 1959 Limited. Yes. Uh, Jim Clark, Jack Brabham drove, Salvadori came in, they all came in. Harry Shell, I remember going in one morning, he was asleep in a car on the forecourt, been there all night. 
um, the American Harry Shell. Yes. So I had a lot of fun and uh, interesting. Martin, my friend, invited me along tonight and uh, lovely. And thank you very much. Thank you. You're absolutely right about Emerson. They, they built uh, Formula Junior cars and Formula One cars. Yes. I, don't, I don't think uh, Coupe National Bells were, were uh, terribly impressed with the cars, actually. No, I say that. No, I say I don't think they were very impressed. Yes, but they did race as works car, works Formula One cars as well. I think Tony September drove one. And uh, John Campbell Jones? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <coughs> uh, one belated question, the very last one. Yeah. Yeah, we're on. We are. Hello. Uh, thank you for an interesting evening talk. Um, with a very small staff, did they do all their own body work, metal work for me? Or was that someone that contacted that? Because there was an awful lot of. Um, bodywork shaping that uh, obviously went on in the different designs. I, th I think this, the single-seater cars they did their own, their own bodyworks, but the sports cars, um, certainly the original L-type sports cars, uh, they, the bodies were done outside. Thank you all very much. I think we've all learned a bit more about on tonight. Right, I think we should move on, don't you? The the, the raffle. So, yeah, is pressing, and there must be a lot of people anxious to see if they can win that tin of WD-40.